I learnt all I ever needed to know about systematic and quantitative investing even before I set foot in the field. Because systematic and quantitative investing at the end of the day is about discipline. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Hey everyone, and welcome back to another edition of Top Traders Unplugged, where today I'm joined by Alan Sheen, who is the founder and CIO at Dalton Street Capital, based in Sydney, Australia, and I'm pretty sure the first Australian manager on the podcast. So first off, Al, thanks so much for coming on the podcast with me today. I'm very excited to uh, being able to speak to you today and, and our conversation in, in general. No, thank you very much, Niels. Uh, the feeling's mutual. Good stuff. Now, I want to kick off, uh, as usual, by framing what we're going to talk about today by getting a better understanding of, of your journey into the rules-based world of investing, which even today, I think, is not fully appreciated by enough investors. So why don't you take us back to how it all began and uh, how you kind of got to where you are today? Well, I'd probably have to go back to uh, almost childhood just to give a, a bit of an understanding about uh, my, my thinking behind uh, what I plan to do as, a, as an adult, so to speak. And uh, my, my background is that of I was born and raised in a, a very small country town. It was under 2,000 people in uh, you know, a, a state in, in, uh, in Australia called New South Wales. We call it the outback. Um, a lot of people think of Crocodile Dundee and uh, where, he, <laughs> where the goings on and the the crocodiles and everything was filmed. Ours was a little bit like that, but more uh, kangaroos, sheep and cattle. And I was, you know, I enjoyed that upbringing. I was, you know, very, very good at, uh, at, at maths and, and science, not so good at the social sciences and, and the English part. And I, I guess, uh, but notwithstanding that, I spent the majority of my time in, on the sporting field. Uh, I think a lot of kids or children that, that grow up in small towns, uh, there's not much to do. So you, you throw yourself into to sports. And that was everything from uh, you know, well-known sports here in Australia, like rugby league and, and rugby union. And uh, in, in the summertime, it was uh, generally uh, water polo, which is really just rugby union in the pool, uh, which a lot of people don't realise uh, what's going on underneath the water. But yeah, so, so my, my focus was actually, whilst I did well at school in maths and science, I was very much focused on my sport. And I I thought I'd go about uh, pursuing a career as a professional sportsman, like I'm sure you, you don't have to convince too many young, uh, young, young boys to, to focus on. But, but fortunately, my, my father, who was an amateur sportsman, but also um, had an engineering background, uh, suggested I do as my two older brothers do, which, uh, or did at the time, which uh, was, was going to engineering. And uh, luckily, uh, I guess, for his advice was 
was sound because I, I had a career-ending uh, injury at, at only 20 years of age, as far as a career-ending, I should say, a sporting career-ending uh, injury. So it was very good advice on, on the part of my father. No, absolutely. So from small town, interested in math, engineering, what, uh, what happens next? Well, to, to, to actually apply uh, what I was interested in, I, I left the, the small town and uh, moved to the city and, and uh, undertook uh, studies in aeronautical engineering. Uh, my, my father was uh, in, an electrical, in, in electrical engineering. I had a brother, one brother mechanical and one brother electronic, so it made sense for me to go and do aeronautical engineering uh, just to, to sort, of, sort of spread the love across the engineering field. And I, I actually did my studies through uh, the military here in Australia. And the, there are a couple of advantages to, to that, actually, is um, in the military, they, they actually provide you with your your education for free. And at the same time, you, you're paid a, a full-time salary to do that. So whilst it was, I guess, a, a challenge whilst my contemporaries and friends were having two months off in the summer uh, at university, I was out you know, running around learning how to be you know, a, a person in, in the military and learning how to march and, and shoot and, and do all those activities that you, you learn in the military. But I think um, ultimately uh, it, it worked out really well. I, I was assigned uh, after my studies to to a research and development unit in an area of the Air Force that I guess in some respects is kept relatively secret. And uh, I spent uh, eight years uh, at the start of my career researching gas turbine engines or jet engines uh, for for another word, and look, it, it was it was actually a, a wonderful experience, and and not too different to to the experience that that I have today. Really, our our role was when people hear that, oh gosh, you're you know, working on jet engines or you're doing research and development on them, that you must be purely trying to make them go faster. And nothing could be actually further from the truth. The, the primary role in research and development of gas turbine engines is to to make sure that they don't stop first and foremost, because that's quite an important aspect to uh, the, the passengers and the pilots on the plane. Uh, as a, I guess, an intended consequence, you'd hope, but also sometimes an unintended consequence, they, they would actually perform better and um, be more fuel efficient and many other aspects that you'd like to see in any mechanical device. But I think, and I guess I look at what I do today as not too dissimilar. I'm, I'm basically applying maths and science to, and I hate to use this word, but to, to engineer client portfolios to first and foremost, make sure they don't stop. I make sure they don't lose their capital, number one. And as an intended consequence, and as we know in our industry, sometimes an unintended consequence, they do go faster, i.e. they do make a little bit more money uh, over and above what the, the investor has um, has allocated. So so to me, it's it's a, you know, I feel as I've been doing the same thing since I, I left school. And another aspect I learned in, particularly in the gas turbine engines, what a lot of people don't realize is the simplicity of a gas turbine engine or a jet engine in in actuality there's really only one true moving part in a, in a gas turbine engine and, and that's the turbine shaft and hanging off that turbine shaft is the turbine uh, vanes and the compressor vanes and the combustion chambers and everything is actually hanging off that one moving piece. And I think that really alerted me when I started considering, you know, applying my skills to finance that I should be looking for 
the simplest outcome because really when you think about it jet engines have changed our life we don't have to sit on a ship traveling you know for, for months at a time to go from let's say australia to uh, you know to england or uh, you know from england to australia as a, a convict unfortunately but uh, yeah it's it, it has changed our whole lives and i looked at the initial models that i built inside the finance world and I w- was very cognizant of the fact that whilst it was intellectually intelligent, uh, sorry, intellectually challenging, and it's certainly a use of your intelligence to come up with very complex algorithms, uh, I just fell back onto my original training and just said, you know, Occam's razor, you know, you want to go with the simplest uh, idea. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's that's quite fascinating. I mean, just staying with the military just for for a few minutes here, I mean, what would you say your experience inside the military i mean how would you say that it's helped you compared to not having it at all i mean is there something really specific that you took away from it other than the specific of learning about jet engines of course i think um, i always say to a friend of mine who's a lawyer and he's he's incredibly argumentative and and i always and he always uses the excuse well of course i'm argumentative i'm a lawyer and my comment always is to him no no you were argumentative when we were children that's why you decide to become a lawyer and use that skill set. Uh, I grew up in a. My father spent time in the military uh, before he went to his his uh, field of choosing, and I grew up in quite a, a structured family. Uh, we all have a certain mentality about us. I guess that's again. It's, I'm not a certain way because I chose the military or engineering. I was that way, and it worked well for me. And I think that. Uh, that helped me uh, become a success in sport as well. And I do say to clients sometimes, and I think I have heard someone on your podcast say this before, that I learnt all I ever needed to know about systematic and quantitative investing even before I set foot in the field. Because mm-hmm. systematic and quantitative investing at the end of the day is about discipline. And we can actually carry that through to fundamental investing because it doesn't matter how good your model is, how well you know your company, how close you are to the CEO, if you don't have the discipline to deploy that knowledge in a systematic manner, you may as well throw out the model. So, yeah, the, the military was was a great experience for me. It tested my, my intellectual knowledge. It, it tested my discipline. And another couple of aspects from from the military was that I I don't feel any stress in this industry. We can have massive days for us, against us, uh, clients, you know, beating us up when we're having a tough time, or you know, even if we have uh, situations where we, we're really struggling to to develop models sometimes. And I just I just don't feel the stress. I, I think having spent time in the military where you're put in situations where it sounds cliched but but your life and the life of your cohort is at risk when you're sitting in an air-conditioned office in a a suit and tie and really just losing a, a couple of dollars or making a couple of dollars here and there it's to me it's an enjoyable experience and there's no stress whatsoever yeah well, speaking about stress, I guess dealing with jet engines and, and in particular the, the fact that you're trying to avoid them stopping uh, mid-air, I guess it could also teach you a little bit about thinking in probabilities rather than possibilities. And that kind of leads me into something I've seen you mention, which is also 
you know, how you got involved in, in the quantitative investing. You know, it wasn't really from just reading financial books. I saw references to uh, people like Charles Darwin uh, inspiring you. So back to the probabilities versus possibilities, behavioral finance seems to be something that is important to you. So, so can we talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. And, and it's also another aspect is alignment of interests. And one thing I love about our industry is the alignment of interest. You know, we, we charge, you know, some people don't charge any base management fee. Some people charge a small one and we have a, a, a performance fee aligned to the interest of the client. And I had that experience in the military. Once you fix or, or do a modification on that jet engine and you sign it off, when that engine goes back into the aircraft, you, as the person signing it off, jumps in the back seat with the pilot. So therefore, that is true alignment of interests. And that was very appealing to me because I thought, no, I think this is fair. How can I sign off on this and do the work and send uh, some chump up into the air and go, well, good luck with that. I hope to see you back on the ground at some stage. No, no, no. You'd be in your flight suit and heading up there with them. So definite alignment of interest. So, so very similar to what we do now. But um, I think I, I learned a lot about it. Probability is the exact right word. Is I think what I found difficult when I came out of engineering and went into finance is this desire, this almost uh, religious uh, experience of trying to predict, the people trying to predict where the market's going, where the dollar's going, you know, where the earnings are going to be. I, I found it absolutely stunning that, that this is how people thought. And I just thought, well, no, no, we just work on probabilities. We have rules or principles of engineering that we have to follow, otherwise the plane falls out of the sky or the bridge falls down or the, you know, the building falls over. And I, I was stunned when I came into the investment market and just realised that the mentality was, you know, have a hunch, better bunch. It, it was a quite quite extraordinary. I just like the idea that, look, if I can, you know, I, I hate to compare it to a casino, but if I can just increase my probabilities very slightly and do that many times over, uh, we can produce a, a very successful outcome for our, our client capital. Do you think actually staying kind of on the topic of behavioral finance, do you think if more people knew about that and, and studied it a bit more, that more people would kind of fall to the side of, of, of how we look at how you should become an investor, meaning, you know, being a rules-based investor rather than doing it on your intuition? Or... No, I, I, I think so. It's uh, coming back to, to my experience um, reading uh, The Origin of Species by Charles Darwin uh, probably gives you a little bit of insight into my personality that I enjoy reading uh, those type of, of books because it's, I don't know if you've had the opportunity to read it, Niels, but it, it would have to have the world's longest sentences in it. <laughs> it's uh, quite an, an incredible book in that sense. So it is hard going. But my biggest takeaway, I, I was just reading it for interest and, and it, I wasn't thinking so much about finance until, look, it, it's under the, the natural selection chapter i think it's probably 90 or 95 pages in or so depending on you know which uh, version of the book you have and it was just a, a very simple diagram of what a whether and i think a lot of people don't realize in the origin of species everyone thinks it's about human beings it has nothing to do with human beings he's uh, darwin speaks about uh, plants and pigeons predominantly so he has this diagram of the breeding of let's say a pigeon for example but it could be anything he's allowed you to, to think of it as anything and you know you start with a, a black and a white pigeon and you, you mate them and you know, out the bottom out out of that first mating comes you know a very dark gray or what you'd expect to be out of a black and white 
pigeon and you know, he goes through generations and generations and after the 10th generation you know he's there looking and observing the pigeons and, and they physically they, they look very different in the sense of their colors but once he tests their behaviors they're exactly the same as those first two pigeons and that's when i started thinking about okay we have a bit of an issue in finance of what I could observe very early on is you look at the top manager for a one, two, three years running and pretty much guarantee they're going to be the bottom manager for the next two, three years running. And I was thinking, what's going on here? There has to be some behavioural basis to it. And I think what it, what I came to, to, I guess, to my conclusion was that humans, no matter how far we've evolved, no matter who we mate with, no matter how intelligent we think we become, our behaviour doesn't change. And the interesting aspect of the diagram in in The Origin of Species in Natural Selection is it appeared to be a, um, I guess, 10 generations, but the, in the fine print of that page, uh, Darwin had written that this indicates 10,000 generations. So for all intents and purposes, you know, his takeaway was, as, as humans, even though he doesn't mention it specifically in the book, but he mentions it later in, in subsequent writings, is you know, we're, we're still acting as though we're running around the African savannah 250,000 years ago. Our behaviours have not changed, and those behaviours are driven by fear and greed. And that formed the basis of, of the model that we run today. Yeah, and, and, and certainly also, you know, the whole concept of, of, of trend following that we often talk about here on the podcast, uh, yet it's still very important for people to kind of accept that these are things that are un very unlikely to ever change. Now, clearly, you have uh, an entrepreneurial gene that uh, allowed you later in life to set up your, your current company. But before we go to that, there is a little bit of a gap from the military and, and to uh, the founding of, of Dalton Street Capital. So maybe you want to kind of tell us a little bit about what happened in, in, in the middle there, and then we'll start talking specifically about um, how you've gone about setting up your, your current firm. Indeed. So uh, I, I would have been around uh, 1994. I left the military, and I look, I had a deep interest in, in finance and applying, I guess. Actually, no, I didn't have a deep interest in finance. I had a deep interest in money. And how we, which it doesn't, it's not very hard to, to, you know, to have a young men interested in money. But, but mine was from the point of view of, of yeah, how do I apply what I've learnt, uh, i.e., math and science, to you know, finance? And I, I went around, you know, using what you know, limited amount of contacts I had, trying to to secure a job in investments. And and the the only job I was able to secure was was a fundamental, uh, a job as a fundamental investment analyst because this was ninety four. It, it, I guess, particularly in Australia at the time, the quant just wasn't known of. It was, it was, the people sort of looked at you uh, very, very funny. The people who were interviewing me, I, uh, I only came across one person who was an ex-engineer and also had a um, degree as a as a doctor as well, and we we hit it off straight away. Um, and uh, he was the only person I ever came across with that background for many, many years. Uh, but, but notwithstanding, is that sort of I was offered a, a, a role with it was a family, a family office, and I was offered a role. And, and two years into to this journey of the fundamental investment analyst, which whilst this person had engineering background and a very science, I guess bent, that was still that was still fundamental. And what I, I found is 
I just found it, it very, very difficult coming from, I get a background of, I guess, engineering principles, um, rules that have stood the test of time, not letting emotions or feelings or opinions get in the way of you know, constructing, I guess, uh, uh, whether it be an aircraft engine or a modification, the concept of What's the best word I could use? The pseudoscience. I know that's almost offensive, but uh, it, it I, I saw it as a pseudoscience. And after two years being an, a fundamental investment analyst and looking at companies and listening to company executives tell me how wonderful they were and their companies were, I just thought this, this, this doesn't make sense to me. We're abdicating our responsibility to make good investment decisions and research based on people's opinions. And, and I actually resigned. I, I, I submitted my resignation and I said, look, this doesn't make any sense to me. I'm heading back to engineering. And it was just fortunate at the time that I was doing studies in, in mathematics. Uh, again, probably says a bit about me just for fun. And I met a couple of guys who were quants. Never heard of them before in my life. And they were talking about this new index. So this was 96. This new index called the VIX index. It's, it's incredible. Have you seen this index, Al? Um, it's based on fear and greed. I went, well, I've just read about fear and greed and behaviors like anchoring. Incredible human behaviors that no matter how well we know them or, or how much we know that we're actually displaying them ourselves, we just cannot escape them. And this is work by you know, well-known authors like you know, Kahneman and Versky and probably right. less well-known authors like uh, Phil Tetlock. And uh, I thought, hey, oh, this is really interesting. And so I, I think after it was, the, it was a night class, I, I ran into work the next day and quickly uh, <laughs> uh, rescinded my resignation and, and hoping that they were kind enough to, to let me stay there and, and undertake this, this thing called quant. And I just immersed myself in it. And, you know, thinking back to my days of engineering and thinking to myself, how can I come up with an idea? And the genesis of it was that we were looking at putting in place a hedging strategy mm-hmm. uh, for our, our equity uh, funds at the time. And I, there's an unusual phenomena that occurs here in the Asia-Pacific region. And it was interesting. I was talking to Mike Adam, uh, as you, you know, Mike, the A in AHL. And he's, he was telling me, uh, this is only the start of this year, that you know, he's been in the industry for, gosh, what, 30, 40-odd years. And he's really only found, uh, what is it, two ways to make money. And he found those two ways in the first two years. And he spent the last 38 uh, and millions of dollars and, and hundreds of millions of man hours trying to find the third and couldn't find it. And uh, it appears as though you know the third is something along the lines of what we do, where we apply, I guess, you know, another version of behavioral finance, but it's, it is actually unique to, to this region. Okay. And so when did you start sort of formulating what has become kind of the strategy that you were that you then continue to trade you know at Dalton when you founded that I think it's it's like a lot of strategies if someone came to me and said look I have three years work worth of back testing um, on this new index called the VIX I'd say well that's I think you need a little bit more than that. But that's what I had. Uh, The VIX had started trading in 1993. I I developed this model in 96 of only three years worth of backtesting. And I was fortunate enough that the the person that was allocating the capital at the time 
didn't give me much actually, gave me $100,000 to allocate to this strategy. And we, we started trading one futures contract and that was just the uh, the spy in Australia. So the the futures contract over the uh, equity industry here in Australia. And what it was was I developed this model that was meant to be a hedging model for the equities that were holding in Australia. But it was so good it over hedged and wiped out all the profits of the equities uh, basket. And I thought, well, that's uh, that didn't work the way you thought it did. But it's as simple as well. How if you how about if you invert the algorithm? How does that look? And it did. So it, it's it was no longer a hedging strategy. It it was a managed future strategy. It was just a a short term uh, behavioural based uh, managed future strategy. I didn't know it at the time though. No, that's I was going to ask you. Did you know that there was something called managed futures? I didn't know for many years that there was there was a thing called managed futures. I I was completely oblivious to this. I think also working in a very small family office as well, mm. and it was very insular. And I I guess I was focused. And look, I was probably focusing uh, looking in rather than looking out as well. I still remember one unique aspect of our strategies is that we use, instead of using cash as collateral, we use an equity basket as collateral. And yeah. that was really a, <laughs> it was it was an unintended consequence of the person that I was working for and their money. They just, when I came up with this strategy and they didn't know a whole lot about futures. And I said, well, if we want to trade these futures, we need to, to put cash on deposit at the futures uh, broker. Think, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to put that at risk. Uh, we don't we don't carry a lot of cash. So I went back to the broker and asked them, "Is there? Can I put my car up? Can I put my apartment at the timer? What will you take as collateral?" And I, I I knew the broker a little bit. He said, "Well, I, I know Al that you run a, a an equity portfolio, which I had been doing uh, for for a number of years." He said, "Well, I'm happy for you to put that equity portfolio up. Uh, we'll take a bit of a haircut on it, but if you want to allocate that, that's fine." And uh, fortunately. Uh, I was able to put that up. And again, I, I had no knowledge of the relationship between managed futures and, and equities, for example. I had no idea that they were uncorrelated. I had no idea that they became negatively correlated in periods of high volatility or, or very low volatility. But, um, you know, I think we all, all know this in this industry. Sometimes these happy accidents occur and we, we just um, are lucky enough to stumble across them. I'll probably come back to this whole part of the collateral uh, a little bit later when we dive into to the strategy. But as I mentioned, I mean, at some point you decide to uh, to go your own way uh, after uh, a long career with, with bigger shops. Uh, so I'm interested in always finding out uh, a little bit more about the thought process that it went into that decision. Uh, and also a little bit how you decided to structure the company uh, you did, because as as far as I'm aware, uh, you didn't start it completely on your own, so to speak. So why don't you do tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Well, I, I spent most of my time at either family offices or fund managers. So uh, they, I was running this managed future strategy inside many, uh, uh, asset managers and uh, who were traditionally long-only equities or long-only bonds. Uh, so it was a very, I was always the unusual person, well, one, because I was quant, but two, because I was always inside a traditional shop. And 
Look, I'd done very, you know, relatively well out of it. It was a fortunate structure whereby whilst I worked at a couple of firms, and the last firm being Credit Suisse, uh, heading up the proprietary trading desk, I always kept the ownership of the intellectual property. So if I joined a new firm, I would go there, I'd join the firm with two documents, essentially, the signed letter of employment and a legal letter saying that I I maintained all the rights and and uh, ownership of, of the, the model. And uh, I must admit, I, I missed out on a couple of jobs at some very well-known firms because of that. And I understand why, but, but fortunately, places like Credit Suisse were, were happy enough to take uh, take that on, on board. And uh, so I'd done this for, for, gosh, what, about 19, 20 years. And I was thinking, okay, well, I, I have a young family and I was thinking, okay, that maybe it's time that I, I just start managing my own money. And I was fortunate enough that I had a, you know, numerous relationships over the course of a, you know, many years in the investment markets. And uh, I was introduced to, to a, a friend of a friend who was saying, well, well, hang on, we're about to set up a boutique incubator. And this is a specialist boutique incubator. So we will only uh, partner with managers who have performance fees and have very, very tight uh, capital constraints and this was a person who'd been running a very well I think it was the largest or the second largest boutique incubator in Australia but it was a lot of long only equities a lot of long bonds you know the traditional and you know this this wasn't you know performing as well it used to but yeah he saw the opportunity to to set it up just just purely for uh, I guess for alternates for a better word so so we were the second fund to join to join this firm and there's now three. Um, a, a second group joined about 12 months ago. And really, it was an opportunity. I thought, well, I'm going to be doing this work, number one. Two, there were two people that I worked with since 2011 at Credit Suisse that I wanted to, to work with me. And I thought, well, I have to fund these guys somehow as well. Um, so I thought, you know, we're going to be doing the work anyway. We're going to pay, be paying uh, the staff why wouldn't we set this up as a, as a fully fledged operation? And I, I guess I, I've always had a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit. I've I've always had a, a second job, so to speak. So at school, uh, I used to have uh, jobs, everything from from cleaning telephone booths to to um, you know finding golf balls and you know, uh, handing them back to the people who lost them and getting them to pay for them. Um, and even in well, as an investment manager, I'd, I'd travel to places like. And I remember an instance I went on holidays to Vietnam and I was uh, heading outside of just outside of Ho Chi Minh City, a little town called Binh Hoa, and I saw these square, this was, gosh, this was back in the late 80s, and um, all these square terracotta pots lined up along the sides of the roads for sale for next to nothing. It was, it was in the in the range of 50 US cents or something. And so I, I managed to, to figure out where these were being manufactured, found one of the manufacturers, handed him, I still remember the exact figure, it was $14,000 US, said, oh, I look forward to receiving a, a 40-foot container in Australia in a few months. And I went back to Australia and I thought, well, that was the fastest way I'm ever going to lose $14,000 in my life. Uh, sure enough, on time, this container arrived full of terracotta pots. And I 
load them in the back of a, a we call them a ute in Australia, a pickup truck, mm. and uh, went around all the the uh, nurseries and garden shops and everything I could think of and sold this 40-foot container of terracotta pots and did that many times over. It's, I, I think it's just in, in, it's just in my blood maybe that uh, I enjoy those sort of activities. So when the opportunity came to, to basically fund my, my, my team of people and also uh, work some, with some really great guys and also outsource the aspects of the business that, frankly, I think a lot of us as investment managers don't have a lot of interest in. You know, you're, you're sitting, you, you set up your funds management business and you, you're working away and your bin's overflowing and you're wondering when the janitor's going to come in and clean it. And then you go, oh, I forgot. I'm the janitor. I need to empty the bin. So it was a great opportunity to partner with a, it's a firm called Prodigy Investment Partners and they take care of everything from risk, uh, compliance, operations, uh, all of our IT systems and also sales and marketing. So, um, and also uh, they've helped us uh, with the working capital as well. Mm-hmm. So like most of these boutique incubators, I think a concern for early investors in funds, as you'd know, Niels, is is this firm a viable firm? That's, I guess, an answer that we can actually give uh, potential new investors that, yeah, we, we have an agreement in place that, that we are funded, fully funded uh, for a significant period of time. And they've already shown that they've they've done it for many many years with the, the first boutique that they partnered with, so um, that's I think that's part of the reason I, I was keen to set up my own business, keen to manage my own money. Uh, but there was a great opportunity to work with great people and allow me to focus on the investments rather than the, I guess the the background work for a better word. Yeah, and I think actually I think that is a good point um, because I th- I found certainly in my uh, career that uh, a lot of great traders aren't necessarily great businessmen. Uh, so having you know some people alongside you, not just to bounce ideas, but to take some of the workload off, uh, is is pretty important. I mean, a lot of peers uh, in our industry will be listening to our conversation for sure, and uh, I think, I think certainly it has become much harder to start new uh, firms uh, in our business in in recent years. So I'm I'm curious a little bit if you can share maybe some of the things that you found, because this is only three or four years ago, so it's relatively fresh in your mind, I'm sure. Some of the biggest challenges that you came across or have come across, and, and maybe also a little bit about how you how you dealt with them, uh, hmm. so to speak, uh, I think that could be useful for many people listening in. Sure. So we started the business at the end of 2015, uh, seeded our first fund in July 2016, and then seeded our second fund in March 2018. And yeah, look, it's the greatest challenge, and you've mentioned it many times before, is the raising of capital. That is one of the great challenges for us and and anyone else I speak to in our industry. I think the second greatest challenge is just, I guess, getting asset allocators to understand what we do, that it's not a black box. In fact, this is a more transparent box than you will ever, ever uh, receive uh, with a fundamental manager. Uh, because we certainly can't see into their minds and I guess look for any sort of replication of what they do on a daily basis. And also, it's it's really just, as, and I think this is part of the reason why you set up the podcast, Niels, is the misconceptions regarding the way we manage money, the way we manage risk, and what is science and what is pseudoscience. Um, the other aspect as well is 
having the investor commit for a reasonable period of time. And I know a lot of my contemporaries and uh, you know, including yourselves, I, th- I think we often say, look, you need to be invested for, for a you know, minimum three years, preferably five. If you want to really achieve good returns, you need to be in for 10. That's how you receive your returns. And uh, there was a, a wonderful study, and I, I never remember if it was actually Peter Lynch who conducted the study or Fidelity that conducted the study. When Peter Lynch was running the Fidelity Magellan Fund uh, over 13 years, his average return was 20 what, nine-odd percent? And when the study was done of what the average investor return was, I think it was a, a, a tiny fraction. Does that seem like a, a credible story, Niels? It, it, it does. I don't, I don't know the specific uh, returns, but uh, it, 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 there's been many studies that show that investors, unfortunately, never get you know, the full outcome of, of, of a strategy of, mm. or a market, for that matter. No, no. And, and I've, I've, most recently I've been, and, and this is one of the great challenges, because you know, we, we don't constrain our volatility. We don't target returns. We don't target volatility. And what I I'm try to explain to people is, is volatility is not risk. Volatility is opportunity. And what we need to understand is, I guess, we, we have a lot of I guess famous investors. Let's, let's let's use Warren Buffett. People, he's an easy target to use. And I still remember that uh, I think in the tech boom, Berkshire Hathaway dropped close to fifty percent over the course of a couple of years. Buffett was featured on the front cover of Forbes or, or, or Fortune, saying he's a has been, um, he's done for. And I think the stock price dropped to the the, the rock bottom price of about forty thousand. Uh, sure enough, now it's somewhere over 300,000. And he's had a number of drops of, of that magnitude. And I think who has actually enjoyed that gain? I think in his case, he seems to have a, I guess, a, a group of people who, who really do idolise him. And um, I think he's built an amazing brand. But then you know, when it comes to what we do and the way we explain what we do, we, we can't really tell the folksy down-home stories uh, about how we've made money or how we, we, we love management or, or you know, we love the product. It, it's, it's really challenging. It's a really a real challenge for us. So, so what I find I do is, is I do try as hard as possible to personalize the fund. And when I say personalize, I mean Al Sheen. This is this is my background. This is the way I think. This is what led me here, and and this is how I conduct myself in everyday life as well. All the way down to referring to to studies. There was a wonderful study in 2016. It was um, I can't remember the exact title. Something like uh, sensation seeking and hedge funds. It was it was basically to do with hedge fund managers who own powerful sports cars. And it's a wonderful study. If you're interested, I'll send it through. And essentially, the, the takeaway was that managers that, that drive high-powered sports cars generally have, you know, they, they generate way more investment risk to deliver lower returns, lower sharp ratios, and lower alphas. 
Uh, so you, you're more likely to see a top-performing hedge fund manager you know, driving a Volkswagen or Volvo instead of a, a Ferrari or Lamborghini. And I, I still read it every now and then just to jog my memory in case I, I see a, a lovely sports car driving by and I think, oh, it'd be nice to be driving one of those. But I quickly read that that, uh, that paper, I think it was in the Journal of Finance, uh, just to remind myself that now I'll, I'll stick with my, my current car. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.